today with us. Um, we're glad that you're here on this beautiful June day. Happy June, everyone. Um, we're glad that you're here at Community Bible Church to worship with us this morning. Our mission here as a local congregation is to grow as a community of faith where each member here has a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ and where each of us is committed to living by Jesus's word, the word that we're given today in the Bible, and to make known by our actions and by our words the new life that he offers to all of us. And we're glad that you're here today. And, and we want to, this, this time here today is just one small step in our carrying out our mission. Direct your attention to the scripture reading for this morning, coming from Psalm 119. There are almost 200 verses in Psalm 119, and we're going to read all of them right now. Um, so actually, we are going to start in verse 97. If you want to listen along, I'll be reading from New American Standard. Um, or if you want to turn to Psalm 119, you can follow along. I'll be reading from New American Standard, starting in verse 97 through 112. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O accept the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord. And teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me. Yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. That's the reading of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning as we continue in our service together? Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you. For the beauty of this time of year, we thank you for the, the beauty of the, the people here in this congregation right now this morning. We thank you for the beauty that you've put in each one of us, Lord. We thank you for the goodness you've put in us. But Lord, we also know that even when we look inside of us, there's still evil. We, even when we look in our world, there's evil, Lord. And we desire your goodness here. We desire your justice on our earth, on your earth. And we look forward to the new creation. But Lord, even now, even now as we strive day after day, Lord, help us to, to bring your justice here. Help us to love your justice. Help us to love your goodness. Lord, we also want to just lift up the, the state of our, of our country. Made up of so many different people. People who think differently, look differently, 
Lord, but you've placed us all here in this time. Lord, you've placed leaders over us in our local government, in our state, in our nation. And Lord, we ask that you would be kind to the souls of our leaders. Lord, we also ask that you would help us to be encouraging, to be an encouragement. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be uh, uplifting to, to each other and to those that you've placed over us in this time, in this place. Lord, we, we, love, we, we love the freedoms that we experience here in this country. We thank you for those, for, for that we don't face that daily persecution that so many of our brothers and sisters face in other parts of the world. But Lord, it's still troubling when we look around and see the animosity, the, the distress, the, the, the bitterness that's around us, Lord. And oh, Lord, we just ask for your peace to be here. Lord, help us to bring that peace, your goodness here to our community, to our country, to our world. Lord, this morning, we wish to praise you. We want the words that we're going to sing, the words we're going to study in your word. We want all of that to be worshipful to you, to ascribe worth to you, to recognize the value that you are, that you have. Lord, help us to Encourage each other just by listening to each other sing praises to you. And Lord, as we leave from this place in, in an hour or so, Lord, help us to take something with us that will help move us in, in your direction, to help conform us more to, to you, to your son. Lord, this place we don't want to take for granted, that you've given us even just a, a building to meet in, that you've blessed this local body we thank you for that. And Lord, we look forward to what's the, the events, the activities over the coming weeks of the summer. We thank you for the, the beautiful time that it is in the Berkshires in the summer. Lord, we ask that uh, that would provide an, an atmosphere, an environment for relationships to be built, for us to carry out the mission that we have here at this church, to help bring your word to others around us in our, in our towns and our communities here. And Lord, even through the, the activities that we've planned, like VBS and empty nesters getting together and just these things, Lord, that they would be tangible ways that we, we are carrying out the mission of bringing your gospel here to our community. Lord, this morning, give us a, a time of focus as we forget the distractions that, that we walked into this building with, Lord, and we can focus on you now. We want to praise your name. You are worthy of all praise. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. We are really fortunate to have the variety of people we have in our services. I mean, our, our diversity is a big thing in our country nowadays. We've got diversity uh, with the congregation that we have. And let us make sure that in that diversity we really show God's love to one another and that the world can see it as they look at us. This is the third message in our series, Seeking and Enjoying God. And the topics we're addressing over the course of these seven weeks are all elements that we would encounter in a typical worship service. So we've already looked at God's holiness and how recognition of that should impact us personally. 
It should inspire a fearful awe in us as we recognize how great God, our Creator, is and how small and insignificant we are in comparison, especially in the fact that we have rebelled against Him. Instead of finding ourselves separated and hopelessly isolated from Him, though, we find that in His mercy, He has made it possible to bridge that gap by sending His Son to take the punishment for our sin and provide a way for us to be restored into fellowship with Him. Fear of condemnation has been replaced by the joy of acceptance as He sends His Spirit to dwell in us and live through us. A proper recognition of God's holiness is essential to entering into a relationship with God. Jesus spoke of this in various places in the gospel. One of them was to the woman at the well. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We're going to talk about truth this morning, but part of that truth is that God is holy. As we've read recently in Hebrews, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Last week, we looked at forgiveness. The forgiveness that we find in Christ because of the sacrifice on the cross that he made in our place. Nothing can separate us from his love and acceptance. No matter what we've done, we can bring it to him in confession, be forgiven and restored to fellowship with him. Confession of sin is necessary if we're to have a relationship with him in the first place and for one that continues to be active and productive. David expressed that clear connection between confession and our life lived for him in, connection, in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Today, we're dealing with seeking and enjoying God's truth, his word. And our scripture passage, as we've seen, was taken from Psalm 119. And it is the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible. It consists of 22 stanzas of eight verses each. And every verse of each stanza begins with the identical letter of the Greek alphabet. And with 22 stanzas, it goes in alphabetical order through every letter of the Greek alphabet. 171 out of 176 verses in this psalm mention God's word, God's law somehow. There are different expressions for law, word, ruling, ordinance, testimony, commandment, precept, statute. The psalm was probably written during the period after the Israelites were exiled. The author finds consolation in God's instructions as he faces trouble in his own life. The passage that we read this morning consists of the 13th and 14th stanzas that relate to our letters M and N, in case you're interested. 
Let's pray before we go on. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we have your word uh, to guide us to study and to learn more about who you are and what you want of us. This morning, in particular, we we think of those who aren't with us and the students and their families that are celebrating on campus uh, as they they've graduated and completed this four year of studies in the things of the world, in a sense. We pray that they will continue, and hopefully they've done a good deal of it as well in the past, to study your word and let that guide them in their lives ahead, Uh, whether it's more education or whether it's jobs or military service or anything like that, Lord. We pray that you will be with them and you will guide them into all truth. Guide us now as we look at your word and see what it has to say about using your word as the guidance, the guideposts for our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Enjoying God's truth sounds like a wonderful idea, but is that what today's average Christian actually experiences? Are we more likely to struggle with understanding why God has allowed things to work out the way they have in our lives or in the lives of others dear to us. Aren't there a lot of things that we're uncomfortable with in the Old Testament? Can we really find enjoyment in studying its ceremonial and civil and dietary laws? What about the moral failures of all the great people in the Bible? And then there are the prophets who seem to mostly predict doom and gloom for all the countries that surrounded Israel because they didn't treat Israel properly or violated God's standards themselves or Israel itself for failing to live up to the way God would have them live. It may seem easier to enjoy studying the New Testament. After all, the great themes of the gospel are forgiveness and love. But as soon as we dig deeper We find a lot of mention of hell and damnation and taking up our cross and losing our lives to follow Christ. Isn't that exactly what it cost the disciples? Didn't they all die horrible deaths with the possible exception of John, who still spent a good deal of time in exile on a small island? Did they all really find that kind of life enjoyable in the long run? If we believe the scriptures themselves and what they record of the testimonies of these men and women that they speak of, then we have to conclude that the answer is ultimately yes. So we're going to have to, in order to find out how they would say that and how their lives could be lived that way, We're going to have to dig a little bit deeper ourselves. We probably need to do a little bit more than just skim the 59 pages of the Bible for Dummies mini edition. I didn't make that up. Uh, You can get that from Amazon. Let's first look at what these two stanzas that we've read have to say about the benefits of following God's word. And then look at some of the questions or excuses that we raise to keep us from living that way. And finally, let's look more distinctly at the New Testament since Jesus is revealed there as the living Word of God.
The scripture passage we just read, um, the beginning of the second stanza, opens with a picture of God's word as a lamp or a light that guides us on our path. The only reason that would be needed would be that it's either dark and you can't see the path, or the path is difficult to see even if it is light. It's difficult to know which way we're supposed to turn if there's a change or a, a shoot running off the path someplace. There are alternatives, and it's not exactly clear what the right choice is. Help is needed to determine the right direction to take. If you've done much traveling yourself, you've probably all got your tales of wrong turns that you've taken that have laid, led you way out of your way one time or another. It's so easy to do that on unfamiliar roads, especially in the dark. Or when an unplanned for choice arises and you've got to make a quick decision, especially like on limited access highways. Oh, was I supposed to take that? I don't know how many times I've done that. <clears throat> or screech to a halt, running almost into the divider that separates the two lanes. Modern GPS units have really changed the way long-distance travel goes for those who use them, and I, I imagine a lot of you have now. They make it so much easier to navigate through strange, unknown cities and arrive at precise destinations we've never visited before. But even they have their problems. If your directions depend on cellular service, you may be out of luck if you haven't downloaded the maps before you took off from your wireless connection. In addition, the directions themselves may have errors. We have friends in Lebanon, Pennsylvania that we've visited for years. But if we follow the GPS directions on several different GPS units that we've used, we find ourselves driving off a 10-foot embankment about 10, 100 feet from their house. You see, the underlying map the directions are based on doesn't realize that there's an impassable drop-off from the northern section of the street to the southern section. So it insists on taking us the way it thinks is the shortest way. And yes, they're only 100 feet from that end, but it's a bluff. It's not a street. And it's about three or 400 feet from the other end. Even in familiar areas, we can still make mistakes when we're not careful. We were recently returning from seeing a play in Chatham, New York, and we weren't coming straight home because we needed to stop and pick something up in Pittsfield. Without giving it too much thought, I took a different route than the normal one I would take home since we were trying to get to Pittsfield and not to North Adams. And I slowly realized this doesn't look familiar. I'm not used to seeing signs for Richmond and things like that. And, and then when I saw a sign for Tanglewood, which went in the opposite direction I thought it should be going, I realized I had turned off the route home a lot sooner than I should have. We got out the GPS map program and quickly got back on the right route. Our lives can face those same kinds of situations if we're not careful. There may be decisions to make where there appears to be a shorter, easier path to get to the destination we want to. But if we were to take that, we might end up with disastrous consequences or, at best, a long detour that would cost us dearly. Other times, we may be caught up with other issues in life, and 
and a wrong choice is made just simply because we don't have time to think about it. It came up too suddenly and we hadn't been prepared for it. We then left wandering around trying to find the path back to where we should have been in the first place. The Bible isn't just a bunch of rules about what we should and shouldn't do. There's a great deal of that in the Old Testament laws, but the Scriptures also give many living examples of what it means to walk with God, as well as examples of what the consequences of choosing your own path and rejecting His ways may produce. By studying it and becoming familiar with it, we can be prepared for the difficult choices when they arrive. We'll be better able to resist the temptations to take those shortcuts, which may lead to long-term regrets. And we'll be more alert to making the right choices when faced with the unexpected twists and turns of life. You know, if we're using a GPS unit to guide our travels in a car, we would want to choose the one that has the best set of maps. Would we want anything less to guide our path in this life? Jesus promises to be that guide. And he warns us is that if we take our own path, choose our own way, that we are going to get lost. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The 13th stanza of Psalm 119, the first part of the passage that we read, describe a number of other benefits an understanding of God's Word provides. It declares that His Word makes us wiser than our enemies. Knowledge of God's ways gives us an advantage, it says, over those who might oppose or hinder us. The thought of enemies was apparently very real for the psalmist, judging from his mention of affliction and people who were setting snares for him. Our enemies may be more of a spiritual nature. Satan attempting to undermine our Christian walk and witness by tricking us into compromising situations. But God's ways are wisest in the long run, as Paul indicated to the Corinthian church. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The psalmist also says that his word gives us more understanding than our teachers or even those with more experience. It makes sense that studying God's word would provide the best source of understanding about living our lives that's possible. No teacher, no amount of experience one has, no matter how old they are, could do better than the guidance that we would get from the one who created us. Could we expect to find the better source to look for, for direction in life? The psalm also says that his word motivates us to avoid every evil and hate, hate every false way. As we become familiar with it, it builds up within us a natural aversion to making bad choices. 
Now, wouldn't you like that? Not, not to be tempted to go down that road in the first place. When we've come to understand the way that God would have us live, it's much easier to identify and avoid the things that would conflict with that. This doesn't all just happen automatically, though. It takes an effort on our part to become familiar with God's Word. The psalmist expressed this in a number of different ways. He says he has sworn an oath to keep God's righteous rules and is determined not to stray from his precepts. Well, to do so clearly involves a strong sense of commitment to this process, to study and know what those rules and precepts are in order to follow them consistently. It's not something that we're just going to acquire by osmosis. The psalmist is intent on not forgetting God's law, which implies that he remembered it in the first place, that he put some of its important points to memory. Memorizing Scripture is a little bit like downloading those maps when you know you're going to be off the grid. You want them so they're there for emergencies. The psalmist also trains his heart, the seat of his desires, to be disposed to perform God's statutes forever. He makes the effort to train his will and emotions to prefer God's ways over any alternative. That, of course, takes practice as well, and knowing what those ways are. Finally, he meditates on God's testimonies throughout the day, not just when he wakes up in the morning or when he goes to sleep at night. He takes the time to understand what they really involve. He doesn't just seek a superficial understanding of God's ways. And they're in the back of his mind all day long as he performs his daily activities, guiding the decisions that he makes. So, how committed are we to being familiar with what God's Word says? Uh, how are we doing at committing important parts of it to memory? Are we making an effort to train our hearts so that they have a natural tendency to choose God's ways whenever we find ourselves in a vulnerable situation? And do we actually apply our knowledge of God's ways to our day-to-day choices and activities as we live this life? This sounds like a pretty heavy commitment. Wouldn't a life focused so intently on following such rules of good behavior end up being tiresome and dreary? Would, would it leave any room for pleasant activities that make life joyful and rewarding? The psalmist certainly claims that it does when you read these verses. Following this approach in life brings joy to his heart, in spite of the difficulties that he's obviously facing. He loves God's law. God's words seem to him sweeter than honey. Maybe that analogy doesn't necessarily connect as much with you. Honey would have been a treat back then. They didn't have quite as many things as we have. Probably didn't have ice cream, I imagine. Can you imagine yourself thinking something along these lines? Getting to understand God's ways is better than topping off a great dinner with a delicious serving of strawberry shortcake with mounds of whipped cream. 
Do you think that's exaggerate? Do you think that's not consistent with what he was saying? He was saying that God's word is more pleasant to him than one of the best tasting things he knew of. I don't know how often we would use that kind of analogy ourselves. Perhaps we're more likely to find ourselves thinking, the person who wrote this must have been a religious enthusiast. You know, but, but it's not for the average person who has a lot more than religious rituals to deal with in life. And that leads us to the questions and excuses we may raise to avoid the effort to study and understand God's word for ourselves. This is one of them. That that kind of life is for people in full-time ministry or religious fanatics, but not for people involved in everyday, ordinary life. Who has time for that? Well, David was a man who experienced just about everything that life could offer or throw at him. From his beginnings as a shepherd, protecting the sheep from lions and bears and killing Israel's greatest enemy. Then after being taken on as the king's musician, having the king himself try to kill him. Living as a fugitive for years before becoming king himself. Establishing the most extensive kingdom that Israel ever experienced. And then, after failing dramatically to keep God's moral laws himself, and having his own son's plot coup attempts against him, he finally closes out his life by making preparations for another son to succeed him and build a temple in which to worship God and replace the tent that had been used for that purpose since the days of Moses. About as full a life as you could find, wouldn't you say? He was a man who should have had a pretty good idea of what brought joy to one's life and also what brought pain and anguish. He summed up his perspective on joy in one of the psalms of praise he authored. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In spite of the busiest kind of life you could imagine, David found time to meditate on God's word so that he could follow it faithfully. And when he failed at keeping it, he knew where to turn to make things right again. And that's why when God chose him as to be the new king over Israel, it was said that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people. Well, if you think that an example from the Bible of this kind of character isn't fair here, you might want to consider William Wilberforce, the man who led the long crusade against the slave trade in the British Empire. He casually noted one day in his diary that he had been quoting Psalm 119, the whole psalm, to himself as he was walking through Hyde Park. One of the most important men in the British Empire took the time to memorize the longest chapter in the Bible. A chapter that told him about how important it was to understand and live your life by God's word. Another tendency that it's easy to succumb to is to view Bible study as studying a rule book, learning what we're supposed to do and not do. That is, creating a list of do's and don'ts for us. And that's what the Pharisees ended up doing. 
They distilled the Old Testament law down into 613 rules to live by. If you could learn those rules and keep them to the letter, you would be righteous in the sight of the law. And that presumably would make you right with God. But it overlooked the whole idea of relationship. And it's probably the most obvious reason that the people of Israel routinely strayed from following God's ways. God became viewed as a legislator and a judge, not a loving father who cared about them and wanted to help them make the best out of their lives. If children view their parents as merely authority figures that they obey or else, then it doesn't make for a very happy home. However, if they have a real relationship with them, with give and take, and see them as genuinely interested in what concerns them, then even when the differences of opinions arise, well, they can see that the limits placed on their behavior are more than just arbitrary demands. They know that it's coming from someone who loves and cares for them and who wants to protect them from the things that could cause them harm. Our goal in studying God's Word is to learn more about Him so that we know God as a loving Father, the loving Father He is, and not just a lawgiver who wants to prevent us from having a good time. When we see the rules and commands of Scripture in that light, we can come to appreciate that they're meant for our benefit, not just to restrict our enjoyment and pleasure, but to maximize them while minimizing the pain and discomfort that evil can inflict on us if we aren't careful to avoid it. Long before the law was given to Moses, God had reached out to individuals and built relationships with them. An obvious element of those relationships was that God is the supreme authority. But God didn't force his ways on them. He asked them to follow him and spoke of the blessings that would result in doing so, not just to them, but to the whole world. These men questioned God and debated the fairness of his actions. They wrestled with God over major issues in their lives. And through it all, they learned to trust him, some more than others. Even without a written law, they had an understanding of right behavior, though they frequently failed to live up to that standard. Even then, God showed forgiveness to them, although there were often serious human consequences for their behavior. As this family grew in size while living in Egypt, the Egyptians who had initially been friendly towards them grew fearful of their number and enslaved them for work on their great construction projects. God then chose Moses and Aaron to lead his people out of captivity and establish a new independent nation, Israel. This nation needed a set of laws to govern them that would reflect God's ways and not the ways of the nations that they lived in. Those laws defined the way they were to relate to one another in a civil society as well as to their neighbors who followed other false gods. They defined the way that they would understand and practice their relationship with a true God. And finally, they defined everyday practices relating to the education of their families, their health, and their safety. This was a major development for a people numbering well over a million suddenly freed from the tyranny of slavery in a polytheistic land where they had been subject to its harshest rules and regulations. These laws must have seemed like a blessing that now offered a consistent way for them to conduct business without the interference of oppressive overlords. As time went on, though, and the people became comfortable with their agricultural lifestyle, 
they seemed to forget what God had done for them and what He had given them. And as we saw at the conclusion of the book of Judges, which we studied last fall, it ends with everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. And that's a common problem for all of us, isn't it? The temptation to choose our own interpretation of what's right and wrong and go with that than what we find written in God's Word. That's about as American as you can get. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The motto of the Gadsden flag, which was the first flag that was used in the Revolutionary War, was, don't tread on me. I want to do my own thing. I don't want anybody else telling me what to do. The problem with that view is that it leads to anarchy if there aren't limitations placed on our freedom. That was the purpose of the Mosaic Law for the nation of Israel. We also need some overriding authority that shows us not simply what is good and pleasant, but what is just and right. And if that is to be meaningful, it needs to be based on something more than just popular opinion. While the Mosaic Law was based on God's authority, it was implemented by a variety of good and bad judges and kings who let their personal feelings influence the direction that they led the people, resulting in Judah and Israel's dismal record of following the laws of God, the laws that he had given them, and that they failed to observe well for over a millennium. Until the time that the culmination of God's plan for all people was to be revealed. And Jesus Christ, the law, God's old covenant with his people was fulfilled, and his new covenant for all people was revealed. As we studied recently in Hebrews, the old covenant had been made obsolete, uh, obsolete and was passing away. With the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., its ceremonial practices ended for good. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 declared that Christians weren't subject to its civil and religious laws. Those laws had served as a tutor to reveal God, God's ways, and they pointed to the way of salvation that we would all receive one day through the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is revealed in the New Testament as the living Word of God, as well as the true light that gives light to everyone, like the lamp mentioned in the psalm that we just read, the lamp that lights our path. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus Himself declared that He was the only way to a relationship with God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Old Testament law showed people that they were unable to live up to God's standards and that their sin separated them from God. Its ceremonial practices were a temporary solution that demonstrated that a life needed to be taken to pay the price for our sins. And this set the stage for the true sacrifice that would break down that wall of separation once and for all and allow us to become true children of our Heavenly Father. God promised to replace the old written law with one that was inscribed on our hearts, 
And this is what we find with our new life in Christ. Jesus promised that he would send his spirit to come and live within us and guide us into all truth. And referring to that old system of laws by which we were to relate to one another, Paul said, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The commandments to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself that Jesus spoke of are actually quotes from the Mosaic law. They were there. The people knew that long ago. But Jesus expanded on what it meant to love our neighbor, redefining our understanding of neighbor by the parable of the Good Samaritan and redefining what love meant by declaring, as he was about to give his life for us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. All of Scripture can help us come to a better understanding of who God is and how much he has loved us by sending his son to die in our place. It also gives us countless examples of those who have followed him and been blessed by doing so, as well as those who have failed to do so and have suffered because they mistakenly thought that they could find a better way. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We have those examples. We have all of God's word to guide our way. The scriptures have some pretty harsh words to say to those who feel they can get on by their own without the effort to know God and study his word. Paul says in Thessalonians, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed. As we study God's word, though, we can come to understand and trust him as our Heavenly Father and to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and friend who came to have so that we could have abundant life. Peter, in writing to the Christians in the provinces of Asia Minor, spoke of the effect that our obedience to the living and enduring word of God, which had been preached to them, should have on our lives. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And this is the word that was preached to you and is still preached to us. <clears throat> we can each seek to, when we each seek to, Understand and follow God's word. The love of Christ will be more clearly displayed in our lives and in the life of this church. And then we will be lights that can show the way to others to enter into fellowship in God's family themselves. Instead of a normal benediction, I want to close with a song.